Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13. Hello and welcome back to First Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. Last time I presented part one of my conversation with Patricia Stewart, Massachusetts lawyer and executive director of Massachusetts Citizens for Life. We discussed that one way to attempt to institutionalize the death culture is not only to legalize assisted suicide, but to also create documents and policies which tilt the playing field toward choosing death instead of choosing life. One way this is attempted is to have people unwittingly sign a document which favors choosing death. MOLST is such a document. MOLST stands for Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Some states call the document POLST, which stands for Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. But whatever the acronym used, it is a WOLF in sheep's clothing. Today's program will feature part two of my conversation with Patricia Stewart, in which she will further discuss the inherent traps that exist in the signing of the most form. I will also present some of the relevant statements in the uh, ethical and religious directives for Catholic health care services from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Let us first, as always, begin with prayer, for as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer, prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy, prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls, will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced with a culture of life. O God, we pray that all health care providers will always be at the service of each individual person and to resist all temptations toward the manipulation of people to accept what is expedient rather than what is righteous. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we had begun speaking of the traps that exist in the most form, starting with the fact that rather than being focused on people at the end of life, this document widens the applicability of the form to virtually any person, not just someone who has a terminal illness. Furthermore, the most form expands 
who may even talk to a patient about their end-of-life wishes to include many more people other than one's personal physician. Now, here is part two of my interview with Patricia Stewart. Again, as a conflict with Massachusetts law, the process is in conflict. The Massachusetts law that I just referred to also provides that, very specifically, the physician or nurse practitioner with primary responsibility for the patient's care Mm -hmm. should be the one to conduct the conversation with the patient. Right. However, the most process on the website redefines who should have this discussion, mm-hmm. opening it up to any physician, nurse practitioner, or physician assistant, regardless of the specialty or right. length of relationship with the patient. Right. So now you have a situation where clinicians who do not even know a patient yes. who are encouraged to advise them on life and death decisions. And this is certainly not in the patient's best interest. Right. Yeah, and I had a very similar experience um, regarding the um, assisted suicide uh, law, uh, which began in Oregon. I remember hearing a story about a, there was a Dr. Bentz, B-E-N-T-Z, uh, who was a primary care doctor who knew his patient, uh, and his, this particular patient had, uh, was diagnosed with, the, with uh, cancer. And uh, the doctor, uh, Dr. Benz, referred him to an oncologist. And then the oncologist called back uh, Dr. Benz and said, well, this person wants assisted suicide, so I want you to be the second opinion. And he said, I, did, he said, I didn't refer him to you for assisted suicide. I referred him to you for treatment. He said, I know this guy. You know, he's my patient. I'm getting back to what you said about having any person sign off on this. Uh, he knew his patient, and uh, and he knew that he really didn't want assisted suicide, that he was depressed. Well, instead of going along with what Dr. Bent said, this oncologist referred him to an assisted suicide proponent, a physician who believed in it, and shortly thereafter, he was dead from assisted suicide. So this, this most form kind of does the same thing. It, instead of having a primary care doctor a doctor who knows the patient, you can have any, any physician or, as you say, a nurse practitioner or, or a physician assistant actually go over this form with a patient. Well, you can imagine if someone's in a hospital room and somebody walks in and they don't never seen laid eyes on before and starts asking them, have you signed a mold form? Would you like to talk about it? I yeah. can give you some advice. And this person is totally caught off guard. Exactly. You've got opened the door for massive abuses of this form. Exactly. And the people who are going to be confronted by these things. And one other situation I can relay also with an experience of a client I had, this lady was in her 80s in fairly good health, Mm -hmm. alert, clear-headed, and had just had some routine surgery, and she was in a nursing home just to recover from the surgery because her daughter lived quite a distance out of state. And the social worker in the facility was badgering her to sign a yeah. most form. Yeah. Fortunately, she stood her ground. She said, I want to wait till my daughter arrives. Mm-hmm. And the social worker was telling her 
if you don't sign this form, you're going to be violating a federal law. <sighs> well, this is wrong on so many levels. Most is not a federal law. Most is not even a state law. And most egregiously, signing the most form is completely voluntary. Yes. So the social worker to ins- have made that kind of a- insistence, coercing, trying to coerce this woman to sign the form was extremely concerning. And yes. that also worries me that other people who are going to be targeted, who are likely to be elderly, seriously ill, frail, or, or anxious, mm-hmm. nervous about their medical condition, mm-hmm. are going to be susceptible to coercion yeah. and maybe too willing to cede the decision-making authority for themselves over to somebody else. Yep. I'm sure as a physician you've heard, what do you think I should do, doctor? Oh, yeah, yeah. And Again, it's a situation that's very uh, concerning for potential abuse. Yeah, the, these these people are very very uh, vulnerable, and and you, just your average person, never mind uh, an elderly frail person, is going to feel, you know, very vulnerable and do what people tell you because they they think their life depends on it. Uh, but I th- this was one of the first alarming things that um, came to my attention was. I had elderly patients in assisted living facilities, and they were being given these forms to fill out. And they'd come to me and they'd say, what do you think I should do? And, and my first question was, who, who gave this to you? You know, that, that, uh, right. that's really uh, out of their purview. In fact, I had one patient who was a very bright person and uh, a strong Catholic, and she saw this form and she was alarmed by it. And she came to me and asked me, you know, what I should do with it. And basically what I told her was, don't sign it, you know. It's uh, yeah. because it's it's not a, a mandatory document. And, um, you know, once you sign it, uh, there's no end date on it. Exactly. There's- and uh, it's very dangerous. The website does say the form should not just be handed out to people to be signing on their own, to fill out on their own, because it is complex. And the, as you know, the consequences of the choices are really matters of life and death. Right. And, and as so you... you need that medical assistance. Right. And, and, and speaking of the choices, uh, that gets to another trap you um, talked about, and that is that the form itself is uh, biased against life. That's true. The... Uh, significance of that is that all the choices on the form, either to accept or refuse treatment, all the first choices are no. Yes. And the significance of that is that in a 2004 study found that when questions about life-sustaining treatment were asked differently, more than 77% of the time, patients' answers changed. So let's say the first choice given to a patient was yes. I, uh, would more people opt to have the treatment? The probable answer is 77% of the time, maybe they would. Yeah. But that's not the objective with these forms. Right. These forms are to get as many people as possible declining treatment, declining care, so that they have essentially signed up for premature death. Yes, That's something that is contrary to what the Catholic Church and how they want people to make health care decisions. Mm-hmm. They don't want people to be forecasting ahead of time without clear facts and information. Pope St. John Paul II wrote in his encyclical Gospel of Life that we should base our health care decisions on, quote, concrete 
circumstances. And now that word concrete to me evokes something, an image of something very strong and solid. And for New Englanders who don't live in an antique house, most of us probably have a concrete foundation that's holding up our whole structure of our homes. Mm. And it's that same kind of concrete, solid foundation that you want when you make a medical decision. And it's the facts that exist that at the time a decision really has to be made that gives you that solid foundation and leads you to the right choice. So that's where another uh, issue with most is that it is just totally based on speculation and guesswork. Yeah, and contrary to Catholic teaching. Yeah, yeah, that's that 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 is very dangerous. And um, you know, I always tell patients uh, that that they should make these decisions in the moment of need because it's impossible to foresee all of the possible, you know, all of the things that could happen uh, in the future. And uh, that kind of gets to the to the form itself. You know, in the past, when I was talking to a patient about end of life care. I would do it in the context of a very serious uh, diagnosis, that they've been diagnosed with terminal cancer or something like that. And the old forms that we used were simply resuscitation forms that they say, well, you know, for instance, uh, someone who had uh, advanced lung cancer, you would talk to them and say, well, you know, the chances of your surviving, um, you know, we can do this treatment or the other treatment, but... Uh, chances are, uh, if you were to have a cardiac arrest, you wouldn't survive it, and it may do more harm than good. And so you would make a very focused determination as to whether or not the patient would want to choose to be resuscitated or not. But here, these most forms, they're making um, decisions on that way ahead of time. And in addition to that, they add things like, if I have the form in front of me, not only CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and intubation, but they talk ahead of time about dialysis. You know, if their kidneys shut down, they talk about artificial nutrition, they talk about uh, uh, artificial hydration. These are things that, you know, the patients, if they're in good health, really can't foresee what that actually means. Of course, that's that's the whole point. I mean, and where the, the major flaw is in this whole system, in my view, is that you're asking people to, um, it's pure guesswork, yep. to predict what they're going to want in a situation that hasn't occurred yet, where all the treatment options for that situation, should it occur, are not even known. And you're, you're asking them to make a very limited decision, basically yes or no. It's terribly unfair. It's terribly unreasonable, in my view, um, to confront people with these kinds of decision-making. I think it creates unnecessary anxiety, and they, that leads to bad decisions. It's something that should not, in my view, be participated in. Uh, right. There's another hidden risk that's not at all evident from the form, mm-hmm. but that I only learned by having spoken with this chief of emergency medical technicians in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And that is that if a person on the page on side one selects do not resuscitate for a stopped heart or for stopping breathing, Mm -hmm. and if the EMT arrives at the scene and that person has a slight or weak heartbeat or is breathing weakly, Mm 
Mm-hmm. That EMT will not resuscitate them. Mm. Previous to most, they would have t- attempted to resuscitate. So you're cutting off a potential life-saving opportunity Yes, uh, that you may not be aware of and is a very dangerous situation. Right, because resuscitation can mean very uh, different things. You know, if somebody is flat out, uh, you know, dead with no heartbeat whatsoever, and that's one thing, but a person could be trending that way and, like you said, have a, a faint uh, heartbeat or maybe they have pneumonia and if they get intubated, put on a breathing machine, they may get through it. But when you make it black and white, do not resuscitate. Sometimes the uh, again the bias is toward not um, not intervening at all. Well, as a matter of fact, EMT protocols have actually changed, and they've written this now into the protocol, which wasn't there before. Do not resuscitate if a person has signed. Do not resuscitate on the most form. You follow the most form. So that's um, a pretty scary situation, I think. And, of course, as I say, it's completely hidden yeah. from what the risks are that people are undertaking when they sign these things. So so what you're saying is that the EMTs, even if somebody has a, a faint heartbeat, that, that they, they wouldn't um, make any kind of intervention in that case either? No. They would just go by the most form. Yeah. And that's their protocol now. Right. And uh, the other thing about the most form, which is another trap that you talk about, is that when you sign it, it never expires unless you explicitly tell them you want it to expire. But the form itself does not have uh, anything on it that says this is legal for, you know, six months or have a no. or anything, anything like that to have it stop. At the very bottom of the first side, they're in small print. It has, this form does not expire unless expressly stated, expiration date, if any, and then you fill it in. But it's very easy to miss that. Mm -hmm. And this is unlike the usual medical order. Medical uh, orders, licensing treatment, are a very unique medical order, as you know. Mm -hmm. Typically, a medical order is written for a specific condition, for a specific Treatments, say if a patient comes in to you and says, you know, I just have no energy, maybe you would prescribe a medical order to see if they're anemic. Maybe they have um, need a blood test to see mm-hmm. if they have anemia. So they would take that medical order to a lab. The lab would confirm that they do work from Dr. Rolo and run the blood test and give the results. But that medical order now ends. Exactly. It has no longer any effectivity. Exactly. With most. It goes on and on and on. Yeah. It never ends unless you put in a, a date on the first side, which, as I said, is easy to miss. And it gets worse because on side two, let's say someone decided, you know, doctor, I'm not going to worry about anything on side one yet. I'll just focus on side two and I'll fill out my preferences for dialysis or our artificial nutrition and hydration. Mm-hmm. If you don't fill out a on side one, an expiration date. There's no place on side two to put an expiration date. Yeah. So anything you put on side two is going to go on forever and ever. Yeah. And that's another trap that is very dangerous for yeah. patients because I'm sure that most people are not going to realize that yeah. if they were filling out the form just partially. Yeah. Well, frankly, when I you know when I've looked at it, uh, I don't even recall seeing the expiration uh, date or, or the or the statement that you could you know, end it. Uh, so it's it's sort of uh, 
in the fine print, if you will. It is. If this were, you know, because the important details are in small print, in my view, this would be, if this was a consumer contract, it would be considered an unfair and deceptive trade practice yeah. because the major information that it's voluntary, that it doesn't expire, um, are not on the form in a yeah. way that would draw the person's attention to them. Yeah. And that is deceptive of trade practice. Yeah, I should say, but you know. They get away with it because it's a medical order. This concludes part two of my interview with Patricia Stewart. Next time you will hear the third and final part of the interview where Pat will share more about the traps that exist in the most form. We will also discuss the preferable way to make end-of-life decisions and the documents involved. Transparency and truth-telling are essential when we communicate. Deception corrupts communication. Most is a good example of corrupt communication. As is often said, the devil is in the details. The devil is the father of lies and the author of death. The deceptive details of the most form is a pathway toward death. In closing the show today, I would like to refer to the relevant parts of the ERDs, the Ethical and Religious Directives for Catholic Health Care, authored by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Part 5 of the ERDs addresses issues in care for the seriously ill and dying. The introduction of Part 5 reads as follows, Christ's redemptive and saving grace embrace the whole person, especially in his or her illness, suffering, and death. The Catholic health care ministry faces the reality of death with confidence of faith. In the face of death, for many a time when hope seems lost, the Church witnesses to her belief that God has created each person for eternal life. Above all, as a witness to its faith, a health care institution will be a community of respect, love, and support. Support to patients, or residents and their families as they face the reality of death. What is hardest to face is the process of dying itself, especially the dependency, the helplessness, and the pain that so often accompany terminal illness. One of the primary purposes of medicine and caring for the dying is the relief of pain and the suffering caused by it. Effective management of pain in all its forms is critical in the appropriate care of the dying. The truth that life is a precious gift from God has profound implications for the question of stewardship over human life. We are not the owners of our lives, and hence, 
do not have absolute power over life. We have a duty to preserve our life and to use it for the glory of God, but the duty to preserve life is not absolute, for we may reject life-prolonging procedures that are insufficiently beneficial or excessively burdensome. Suicide and euthanasia, however, are never morally acceptable options. The task of medicine is to care even when it cannot cure. Physicians and their patients must evaluate the use of technology at their disposal. Reflection on the innate dignity of human life in all its dimensions and on the purpose of medical care is indispensable for formulating a true moral judgment about the use of technology to maintain life. The use of life-sustaining technology is judged in light of the Christian meaning of life, suffering, and death. In this way, two extremes are avoided. On the one hand, an insistence on useless or burdensome technology, even when a patient may legitimately wish to forego it. And on the other hand, the withdrawal of technology with the intention of causing death. The Church's teaching authority has addressed the moral issues concerning medically-assisted nutrition and hydration. We are guided on this issue by Catholic teaching against euthanasia, which is an action or an omission, which of itself or by intention causes death, in order that all suffering may in this way be eliminated. While medically-assisted nutrition and hydration are not morally obligatory in certain cases, these forms of basic care should, in principle, be provided to all patients who need them, including patients diagnosed as being in a persistent vegetative state, because even the most severely debilitated and helpless patient retains the full dignity of a human person and must receive ordinary and proportionate care. So ends part five of the ERDs, which addresses issues in care for the seriously ill and dying. Next time I will go into some of the specific directives in this regard. And until next time, remember, we should always treat life with care and respect, and at the very least, we should first do no harm. Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rolo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrolo978 at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O 978 at gmail.com. Thank you, and until next week, remember, first, do no harm.